but there's this famous story about the Sex Pistols first trip to the UK where they played a show in Manchester to like three dozen people. And of those three dozen people, basically everyone in the audience went out and started a band that became successful. So Marcy was in the audience. <laughs> the guys from the Buzzcocks <laughs> were in the audience. The dudes from Joy Division, literally the guy who started both Joy Division and New Order, went and bought his first guitar the day after the show. It was a tight-knit community, and that kind of supposedly, that one little show spawned a lot of stuff. It was a super spreader event. Exactly. <laughs> it, of course it was. They all looked at it, and they're like, oh, you can suck at your instrument and still be in a band. <laughs> and look, these guys are getting laid after the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where four lifelong friends, lifelong musicians, music appreciators, and of course critics get together and discuss albums from the 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die list, kicking some to the curb, lauding some even higher by, by marking, anointing them with our stamp and uh, generally talking about nerdy musical things. So thanks for joining us. I am Rob, and here with us today we have... Tom. I'm Adam. And Phil. Awesome. Glad to have everybody in the studio today. Today we're going to talk about, as as mentioned on last week's podcast, today we're going to talk about (laughs) The Smiths, The Queen is Dead. I have a feeling this is going to be a controversial one based on the text strings that have already <laughs> whatever gave you that blown clearly. about. And I, I, I'll, I'll just say off the bat, I understand why. I think it's an easy record uh, to dislike, and as much as it's an easy record to like, so I'm excited to get into it. But maybe just a, uh, first, a little bit of background. So the Smiths are a very well-known uh, British band. They're from Manchester. They were putting out records in the '80s, and the Queen is Dead is their third official release of, of a total of four and widely considered to be their best. They broke up not too long after this record came out. They put one record out like kind of right after this and broke up and truly, truly hate each other. There's never been the possibility of a reunion on the books. And I do like something about bands that just call it quits and really never look back. So bravo to them. So this was originally released in June of 1986. Didn't really crack... Uh, the UK charts, it was favorably reviewed. We can talk about some of those reviews. But the Smiths in general, you have to understand, were a band who weren't really... They didn't have a ton of commercial success when they were around, but they attracted kind of a devoted cult following uh, through their time. Part of that is their singer, Morrissey, having a rather unusual voice, kind of an unusual approach to songwriting, being sort of sassy in his uh, approach to those things. And so a lot of people, especially teenagers... You could argue that the 80s is sort of a time of teenage angst. I really, really love and are devoted to the Smiths. So they have, they have a lot of that, but they never really achieved commercial success. And there's, we can argue about why. They hail from Manchester, which I thought as a little background, it's a very musical city in, in the UK. It's kind of considered the second city of the UK. Lots of great bands have come out of there. The Bee Gees, Herman's Hermits, Joy Division, Oasis. Even though it's maybe like the fifth largest city in the UK. It's considered the second to London easily in terms of sort of the arts and 
especially the musical scene there. So, but that said, it is kind of a, a working class city, right? So there's always that chip on your shoulder. We're not London kind of vibe to what's going on there. It was one of the first industrialized cities, uh, I think, maybe even in the world, but certainly in the UK. And so a lot of working class folks uh, making sense of things. So I guess let's just get into it by asking what, I'm almost afraid to ask, what were people's first uh, impressions of (laughs) of the record? Dismiss the Queen is Dead. Tom, I believe this one goes to you. Yeah, man, I tried. I really did try. I tried to get into the album. I hated it. I really don't like it at all. I find very little redeeming about it. I think that there is... I was somewhat shocked when I learned that this was their third album. It sounds unprofessional. It's like terribly mixed. There are like some obvious mistakes that they should have fixed. And it didn't seem to me to be the work of like an established band that has been in the studio many times before. I also was like, oh, the lyrics are the lyrics of like an angsty teenager, like you said. But then it's like, oh, Morris, he's like 26 years old. Like that is a little bit less of a <laughs> excuse think about that. that he's, <laughs> yeah, he's given these sort of angsty teenage kind of vibes and like it played to his, his audience, I guess. And I am, you know, I'm an angsty adult, but I'm not an angsty teenager anymore. I'm angsty about different things. Though I liked the instrumentals on the album. I actually thought that the bass had a really good tone. I liked the bass. The guitar was, I thought, good and interesting guitar, but the mixing was so inconsistent. There were songs where I couldn't even hear the guitar at all. It's like certain songs, they like had the bass cranked way high. You could hear the bass really well. Certain songs, they had Morrissey cranked way high. And you could just hear Morrissey. And that kind of like really inconsistent treatment throughout the album kept bringing me out of it. It's like, you know, when you see like the John Mulaney joke where he's like watching a, you know, an an episode of Law and Order and there's like a lineup and it's like Dean Cain, you know, (laughs) Superman is in the lineup and it like takes you out of it immediately. We're just like, oh, it's Dean Cain. Like clearly it's him. That's the guy. Um, And it like takes you out of the moment. And like I found myself being taken out of the moment frequently by just these things that were, again, Hard to get over, and yes, I'm. I was being uncharitable to it from the beginning because I cannot stand Morrissey, his entire persona, his entire delivery. I don't like any of it. I also do think that the focus was more on that than it was on the, the parts that I liked, which was like the, some of the instrumentation, the song structure. I thought were really good, but they just don't give a chance to shine because of the way they're presented. All right. So I, uh, Rob, you you described Morrissey's vocal style as unusual. And I would say that that's accurate in the same way that I am unusual at basketball, tennis, <laughs> skateboarding, dubstep breakdancing, <laughs> in that I am bad at it and shouldn't do it. <laughs> so to Tom's point about constantly bringing you out, so went in to the week and, and the album trying to be open-minded. I, I, I really didn't know much of the whole um, Morrissey, uh, his backstory, and he's insufferable and all that, right? Like I, I didn't know that, which was good for me going into the album. So right off the bat, listening to it, I had such a hard time getting past his pitch problems I can, and the consistent pitch problems. Like first or second song, I thought, okay, well, maybe it was a bad, a bad run or whatever. But then the finished the album and I thought, okay, well, he sings pitchy. So maybe it was just this album. So then I went back to Meet His Murderer and I listened to a few of those and I'm like, oh, this might just be the way he sings in air quote. So that kind of set me on a course for this album where I, I really struggled to be to listen to it, you know, a, as a whole. To Tom's point, 
great, great musicianship all around, right? Like I, I liked the guitar work. Song structures were good. The, the music was good. I just had such a hard time getting past his voice. So that kind of, but having said that, I'm also still in crisis because I don't know yet. And I'm looking forward to the, to the conversation here of whether or not I think this should be on the list because I want to make sure I, I'm being fair, right? Does one aspect of the music throw it all down the drain? So we'll we'll see as we continue yeah, the discussion. That's interesting. I, I definitely, picking up on a lot of the things you guys said, I mean, I think that's really interesting feedback. I didn't really consider the mix that you mentioned, Tom, but I, I do think that that's maybe true. It didn't sort of strike me at the time. I found this record to be very... Um, well, first of all, I had a very low expectation, right? Like, I'm sort of the opposite of what you're saying, Adam. Most of what I know of Morrissey is basically like his solo song on the Kraft soundtrack and basically just his persona, you know, his insufferable persona. So obviously, like, when I listened to this record, I was familiar with it. I've been exposed to it, but I didn't really know it. And I, and I thought it was really interesting just song to song. Like, like honestly, Rob, you said, like, I think you opened with, like, what was your first impression? My first impression was, oh, no. Because it starts with, like, 10 or 12 seconds of, like, <laughs> you know, I don't even know what to call that. Um, on the Queen is Dead, you know, some kind of, I don't know, English folk song. But then, like, the drums rip in. I thought it had a really interesting, like, sort of early 90s or early 80s, uh, mid-80s, like, drum forward sound i think a lot of, and i even thought like a lot of the records that maybe i grew up listening to a lot of bands first records like 10 and, and and core and even that first dave matthews record like they sort of had this like over compressed over close mic every drum has reverb on it sound that i thought was like oddly downstream from this i thought the chords were really cool it was the other thing that stood, stood out to me with like the queen is dead i thought like oh man there's weird chromatic motion and the chords and like they're all major chords which sort of gave me like an odd nirvana vibe marcy's voice is quirky to say the least but i felt like if i listened to it a hundred times like it might it might neutral milkhead tell me right like i might fall deeply in love with the sound of his voice um, now that said you know, there are songs like, frankly, Mr. Shankly uh, was a standout of one that I just don't see how I would ever get over that. There were other ones late in the record. I don't need to. <laughs> uh, the bass sound on, frankly, Mr. Shankly is fantastic. It really it's yeah. fat and round and really good. Johnny Marr was the destiny of Johnny Marr, the guitarist, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see why he and Morrissey hated each other, because I feel like every song where like Morrissey's voice is way up in the mix, the guitar is way down. And I could see it just being like, maybe like Morrissey went in later on in a mixing session. It was just like, just turn that guitar down. I'm, and turn my, right. My I'm not this up. focus of attention. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fix this. I'm not even putting a negative, like, Oh, I'm not the focus of attention. So therefore I have to do this. I'm more just saying that like, he drowns out Johnny Morris contribution on this album a lot. I think. Have you, Yes, I want, I want to tell you guys kind of where I'm at, but I want to direct your attention to, have you looked at any of the band photos of the Smiths? There's particularly this, this famous one with Morrissey sort of up front, and there's another guy in the band kind of looking confident, and there's a third guy in the band kind of looking confident, and there's one little squirrely dude all the way in the back, kind of looks like our friend, our friend's brother. And it took me a long time to realize, oh, that's Johnny Marr. He's the guy way in the back. He's not in control of the band, right? He is the musical presence. He wrote 
all the songs and then Marcy is the lyrics writer. And so all the musicianship and sort of the songwriting. And I, I want to say the melody, although I'm, I'm never sure how to ri- read those liner notes because it always just says music by Johnny Marr, lyrics by Marcy. Mm-hmm. But we can imagine that he may have also written those melodies. But I think that's a fair assessment that he was definitely not in control of the band. And Marcy quickly took center stage. He's a little heartthrobby, as you can imagine, kind of old school. Hold on, Rob. Is this, is this the picture that you're talking about here? You can click on this. Yes. That's okay. Yes. Dude, he looks like um, the guy who played Fredo in The Godfather. Exactly. <laughs> just yeah, kind of totally. squirrely, weaselly, dude. Yeah. Totally, totally. And I just remember, I, I knew someone in directly in post-college who had that as a poster or something from that photo shoot as a poster on their, on their wall. And it was, that was kind of my first introduction to the Smiths back then in my 20s. And I just remember staring at that and wondering and hearing about that it was Morrissey and Marr. I know who Morrissey was. I didn't know who Johnny Marr was. I assumed that he was the other guy in the front of this picture. It's a reasonable assumption, right? But then later kind of having this realization that it was the dude all the way in the back. So it sounds like I'm the only person that had already spent a fair amount of time with this record. I listened to it in my 20s a good number of times, kind of got acquainted with it, got, let's say, over the hump of Marcy's quirky voice. I'll start there. Well, actually, I'll start with my first impressions on listening to it again. I I also kind of had low expectations just after talking about it with you guys, because I think of it as the kind of record that is very personal and emo, you know, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so not necessarily what you, what I would ever have called cool. That's not a word I would have associated with it. You know, that said, I thought when The Queen is Dead kicked in, I was like, oh, this actually rocks. This is, it still sounds fairly modern. And I was sort of happy about that, right? Then on Deeper Listen, I also, this is something I never noticed in my 20s when I kind of had my time with it before, was those sort of mixing and production inconsistencies. Partly that was because, so I, I also agree with, with that point, but partially that was because I was like researching what people had to say about these songs. And there's a lot of fanship out there and famous other musicians. Just say what you will, this record certainly influenced a lot of people and a lot of famous musicians in that next kind of wave of even indie rock into America and things like that, you know, but people would mention like, Oh, the bass work on queen is dead. And I'd be like, I can barely hear the bass or, you know, and they're talking about, Oh, the cool production choice on some girls are bigger than others. And I'm like, that, I always thought that was a mistake. Like where it's like a door closes and then it opens. <laughs> right. And I was like, I always wondered about that. And I saw this interview with the engineer proudly proclaiming that it was an innovative decision. I'm like, no, it was, it was not, it was a, it sounds it was like a, a screw up. It was a bad decision and you should yeah. just own it. So, I'll just say right off the bat, I, so I like it. I think it's great. I think it's tuneful. I mean, very melodic. I like the melodies on on the songs a lot. I like the guitar work a lot. I think Johnny Marr is an interesting, subtly innovative guitar player. He's more of a rhythm guitar player, especially on this record. But I think what he what he does with that rhythm guitar is is, is reasonably innovative. And I just think Morrissey is unique. I can't exactly deny that he has a super warbly, strange you know, voice. I so I guess I'm not going to deny that he's pitchy, but I have to be honest, it just doesn't bother me at all. Like not even a little bit. And I think okay. there's lots of other singers who have those similar qualities. Phil brought up Jeff Magnum from Neutral Milk Hotel, I think is a good example. I thought a little oh, okay. bit. Of, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. I got I got I got to refute that because the problem I have with Morrissey is he seems like he's never willing to like push hard for a note he's kind of always sort of slinking into it 
And <laughs> yeah, sure. Say what you will about the voice of uh, Jeff Mangum. Like he goes for notes. He really is pushing it. And he doesn't have like a beautiful timbre to his voice. Yeah. But I would not say that he is like a very, that he's like an imprecise singer. That is the, I think it's the imprecision is my, my issue. I, I saw, uh, I saw Mangum once and he did O'Comley and he can't hit that note. He doesn't hit it on the record. He can't hit it live. It's is just, it a high? Is it a high note? Yeah, because I'm, that's too. fine. Like I get it's a high that belt too. <laughs> it's right, yeah. and I get that not all singers are perfect. Like you go back and you listen to the Jimi Hendrix experience, right? Like the the tone of his voice, it was decent. I mean, he wasn't one hundred percent, one hundred percent of the time, but a majority of the time, he was hitting the notes on pitch. Even if he was and chewing the, gum, right. <laughs> <laughs> If six was nine, is that what the one we're going to do? Through the whole track? But yeah, my my problem is it's just consistently out. And again, I, you know, you guys joked that like my, my ear or whatever, but I have a really hard time. And, and that's just something I, I, know, I have an actual question here thing. because, because there were, there was a style of song where I felt like Morrissey's voice really shined. And that was the slower one specifically. I know it's over. And never had no one ever were the two that like, I mean, maybe there are other slow jams like later on the record that I, you know, I wasn't paying attention to the track list or something, but like, I'm curious, like, is it the faster ones where, where like he has to hit more notes or is it? Now it's even on the really slow one, the, I know it's over. There are a uh-huh. couple seconds in there sure. where it might even be the first time he says, I know it's over, it's over, it's over. And it's, it's gotta be at least 40 to 50 cents off of what the note should be, which I also have a theory as to why there's no backing vocals or other harmonies <laughs> on this album too, because it is remarkably difficult to try to harmonize to somebody who's not Into, on pitch. Well, and the yeah, backing vocals that are on there, are like weirdly affected and pitched. So there's no, there's right, no I, clean backup. I think they are Morrissey with the tape sped up. That's my understanding. Mm. Yeah, so I think he is literally the only voice on the record. Listen, I, I partially understand what you're saying, but I do think it's done very purposefully. And I think his persona is very much, he thinks of himself as sort of a modern-day Oscar Wilde, someone who's in repose on a divan and spewing wit you know, to the salon, like that's his, that's part, that's part of his deal. But I just have to be, I just have to be clear. It doesn't bother me in the least. I think he sounds great on, I know it's over. I think that song is a great example of him doing, and we should also say he's, I don't, I don't know exactly what his range is. I don't think he has a huge range. I think we can acknowledge that, but he's like a, I don't know if he's a baritone or kind of a low tenor or something, but he's some low range set. Anyway, I think that's a great example of a song where he is, clearly improving and find his, his way through it, but also has a good sense of withholding the note that you clearly want to happen. Like there's tension in that performance. And I think that's what part of what makes it good. Maybe if I had listened to this when I was younger, Rob, I'm not making assumptions about how you were first introduced to this album. When I say this, because I think it actually might be accurate, but this seems like the album that that quirky girl that you're crushing on in your mid twenties, when she's like 26 introduces you to, and you like end up having like a, a short, but very uh, intense relationship with her where you're listening to this album while you're having like, you know, carefree mid twenties sex. And then like, it gets in your head. of like, Oh, this is so great. I love this. 
I don't know if that was your experience. This seems like the thing that like the manic pixie dream girl would introduce yeah. you to when you're casting about for you. You're not crazy off. far off, but I do want to correct. <laughs> I want to correct the story by at least saying that when this was first introduced to me in that little story that you just that arc of a story you just laid out there, I didn't like it. I acknowledge, I acknowledge that it was hard to like at first. I acknowledge mm-hmm. that Marcy, the person, had a lot of baggage. He is an insufferable prick. And, you know, and then just I think the songs were a little uh, less accessible, right? But that over time, I truly have come to like them. And so when when looking back on it, I wasn't thinking nostalgia. I'm just being honest. I wasn't, it wasn't like a nostalgia thing. I, I was I was thinking that that could have been it, but I was like checking myself for that. I really don't think that's it. I think these melodies, they got stuck in my head really easily. I found myself humming along to a lot of them. I'm a big melody person, so that's ultimately what it is. I think a lot of these melodies are, are extremely memorable. I just, I, the melodies are so like, I can't even identify the melody sometimes because he's warbling through it so much, but they're kind of that romantic, emotional melody thing that I, again, I get why it's not cool, but I, I just like it. But the thing we haven't, the point we haven't touched on too, and I understand it takes a certain, maybe an age range or a sense of humor, but I think the record is funny. I think he's funny. He's got a kind of gay man sassiness, if I can say, although he's never pinned himself to one sexuality, but he's kind of coming from that sort of persona. And it's funny to me to hear lyrics about bludgeoning someone in their bed, like in a sarcastic tone or, and then I'm sure we're going to get deeper into the, the personage that is Morrissey, who I agree is extremely unlikable. And I think his bandmates and various people that have run across him in his life would agree However, I've done a little psych eval on him. He's insufferable and self-absorbed, certainly. But he is also extremely self-loathing and is aware of his crazy persecution complex. And so you get, I think, funny, self-aware lyrics of, now I know how Joan of Arc felt. Like, it's clearly a dig at himself about how ridiculous he's being. He can't stop being ridiculous. It's, it's, it's funny you bring that line up, Rob. And I'm uh, sorry to cut you off, but... Uh... That I, I was just driving down the st- like driving down the street the first time I listened to this record, and I must have zoned out, you know, for a while, and I sort of snapped back into it with him saying the thing about Joan of Arc, and I thought, what the hell is happening here? Like, how did we get here? I missed something. Like, like when you're reading a book and you sort of just like space for a page or two, and then something important happens, yeah. and you're like, wait a second, how did I get here? <laughs> I just, to me, this is a, it's sort of a must listen for would be smart alecky songwriters. Even if you're not going to go at it from this perspective, I've always liked cleverness in songs. And I think there's undeniable cleverness and kind of dark humor within this. Are you referring to the lines like, some girls' mothers are bigger than other girls' mothers? I love that line. I, <laughs> I love that, that it song makes so no much. Sense. I love it. That's, the, that's most of the song. Like, I know it is. <laughs> There's only like four other lines in the song that aren't those lines. <laughs> I don't get it. Okay. Uh, he talks. He talks about. He talks about romanticizing being hit by a double decker bus. Yeah. Dying in a car crash. You know. He tells the guy off and frankly, make Mr. Shankly, which is about the record executive, that he writes terrible poetry and he's a flatulent pain in the ass. I just. I think it's maybe I'm not laughing out loud at this point in my life from this kind, this brand of cleverness. But I've always appreciated this brand of cleverness. And I just I personally draw a pretty easy line from this kind of songwriting to other songwriters I, I really do admire, like Stephen Merritt of the Magnetic Fields or 
I don't know, even maybe contemporaries of the Smiths, like Violent Femmes, or They Might Be Giants, or other people who who play in those waters, basically. It, it, it's definitely interesting you said Magnetic Fields, because that was absolutely the main artist, right? Like, that was the main artist that I was immediately like, oh, aha. Like I said, there were elements of the way the drums were mixed, specifically on The Queen is Dead and I think Boy with a Thorn in His Side, two of the very, very drum-forward mixes. That sort of gave me weird insight into, I think, a lot of, like, early 90s production choices um, that were, you know, probably because this record was hip and this sort of drum stuff. Again, things about U2 that I also sort of realized, like, oh, okay, there's a thread here that, like, this is bigger than just, you know... Bono mouthing off, but Magnetic Field, Stephen Merritt was the big one. And I was like, oh, this is like, St- Stephen Merritt is like the Smiths unplugged, right? Like a bit. Listen, my, my, my overarching point is that Morrissey is a troll in the pre-internet era and in the post-internet era. And so I don't, that doesn't mean I like him. I don't like trolls. I don't like troll culture, but I do think he was a bit of an innovator when it came to some aspects of that. He's clearly... And even his public persona, he is very much, he's a fame whore and he's very open about that. I'd rather be famous than righteous or holy is one of the lines too. Mm -hmm. And so he's someone that was very clear about constantly courting controversy and talking crap in the lyrics and then acting persecuted about it. It's it's ridiculous. It doesn't make me want to have a beer with this guy, but I I do think it's a persona. You're describing like the 80s version of the Kardashians, basically. I am going to get famous. I want to do, I'll do anything to get famous. And then once I get famous, I'll be, I'll stay famous for my persona and less for my, well, they don't have any creative output, but you know what I mean? I don't find a lot of, a lot to recommend that. As, as we're going down this, this list, I, I immediately thought of Fred Durst as somebody who sort of built a career on just like stoking stoking a certain type of the limp biscuit guy are you yes. going to agree that marcy has a better <laughs> voice than fred durst yes yes oh well, i can i don't know about that Wait, are you, you're talking about flat fred, there <laughs> about fred durst the director of the movie the fanatic of course that's the fred durst you're referring to <laughs> i just think there was something with that red hat and the way he was always like in people's faces and just like and doing it all for the nookie yeah exactly exactly <laughs> even the songs yeah. were like rubbing it in your face right it was like yeah it was like a commercial for itself sort of thing right thinking about rob you're saying right the impetus of this style that kind of self-loathing you know, the 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 lyrical nature of the smiths may have been the the impetus for me saying that when I listen to this album, aside from the the title track and maybe one of the other harder driving tracks, I was thinking, pretty sure I saw a shitty acoustic band in Borders Books and Music playing all of this stuff in 1996. You know what I mean? Where it just, to me, it was just like, okay, yeah, you know, they're singing about you know, don't kill animals for fur. And it's a girl with a bad voice and an acoustic guitar playing the same thing. You know, that's, that's where my head went now, not disparaging that perhaps this was the, the invention of that style. So I'm trying to keep that in mind as I vacillate back and forth on this. Listen, I don't, I understand we're in a little bit of an adversarial position here. We, and ultimately we can agree to disagree because I'm, 
I feel more strongly that I like the record and I'm going to keep listening to it. So nothing you guys can say is going to change that. Oh, of course. But right, right. I, I will say this. I hate that kind of music just as much as anyone on this call. I assure you. <laughs> I just don't think that's what this music is. I do think it's emotional. I don't think mm-hmm. it's the kind of music I'll probably roll my windows up at the traffic light, in other words. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't like it. And I, doesn't, you know, I think it has value and I think there's good writing behind it. I just do. I, you know, it's funny because I, I definitely thought of the Violent Femmes listening to this album, but the, I love the first Violent Femmes album, the self-titled album from 83, three years before this album came out. So I think that they did that in a way that was, I think, more clever and funnier and less annoying. And maybe it's a British versus American thing, which I also just uh. want to bring up that like Birmingham is like a working class town. Manchester. And like Manchester, sorry, Manchester. Yeah, Birmingham is the one that they. I think they did they name drop Birmingham in the uh, in the like the opening uh, little sample. Um, yeah, Manchester, whatever. Manchester Morris, he probably got the piss beaten out of him he all did. the time. He is basically like, and I don't truck with these people at all, but he is like the definition of what those like proud boys would prefer to was like a soy boy. You know, ah, he's right. like I'm celibate. I don't eat animals. And I'm like super emotional and I wear tight clothing and I like talk about all the <laughs> slings and arrows of my life. And yes. like, I don't agree with those guys on much, but I do agree with them about the fact that I don't particularly like people like that. Wait, let's, so let, let's get into that for one second. And first of all, I would, I like the Violent Femmes record better, but I did think of the Violent Femmes record. I think they are somewhat of a piece. And, but if, yeah, if you made me choose between them, I'd choose the Violent Femmes record. It might be the American thing. What you hear a lot of people saying and what I think is can be hard for us to grasp is how insanely English or British these guys are. I think there is something cultural about it. And they certainly were bigger in in Britain than they were in the UK. But speaking of the soy boy comment, I do think there's a very purposeful anti-macho rock star approach here. You're right. Marcy was definitely an outcast his entire life. He definitely got beat up in high school. If he doesn't actually identify as gay... I, I believe over, you know, he, he refused to ever pigeonhole his sexuality while the Smiths were going on. And he, at some point had a relationship with a man and later had a relationship with a woman, whatever. And he was celibate when the band was going on, like you said, but he was certainly an outcast. One of the things I thought, you know, like, and he's, he's really trying to go against a little of that. They came out in the early eighties purposely go against that kind of the only version of what a lead singer can be is this hyper macho sexualized. If you I'm trying not to say that it's another version of what a gay man lead singer can be without actually saying, because I know Marcy doesn't necessarily identify that way, but even Freddie Mercury was putting forward a very macho version of what that is. And I think Marcy went this other direction and I'm just saying he did it purposely. We can, you can like it or not. Sure. But that was, that was part of it. That's interesting too on, on the, the timing, right? So 81, 82, as you're saying that they're touring, starting up right i think their first record came out in 82 yeah okay and you look across the pond of the u.s and who's big right motley crew def leopard poison now they might not be super macho but they're hyper sexualized male fronted bands where everything is phallic you yeah. know uh, just the, the entire their whole shtick well, it's just sex, right? And, and interestingly, they, they were listening to the same guys because that's coming off a of glam rock. Marcy was super into Bowie and T Rex. They okay. were, you know, they they okay. come from the same place, but they took it in a different direction. But anyway, continue. Yeah, right, right. Okay, okay. So yeah, it, it was. I think it was. A, it was a different way to go. And 
I just think it presented something. I mean, part of the reason it was marketable ultimately is because it wasn't out there in the market already. Another comment I had, perhaps you will disagree, is that the fact that this band was just a more traditional rock band at a time when everything was going synth and new wave or maybe even stuck in punk. Clearly, there was a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a plethora of different kinds of music on, you know, the Nightfly was popular in 1982, as we sure. learned last week as well. But it was a little anti where the trends were at the time. And that's one of the reasons I think a lot of indie rock bands of the sort of 90s and 2000s draw a pretty clear line back to the Smiths, because that was an example of a band that didn't have a ton of commercial success, worked that small but devoted fan base through touring and they, what they did this weird kind of marketing thing where they released a ton of singles that weren't on albums. They were trying to kind of like harken back to an earlier day, mixed success with that. But that's why they have a bunch of weird little singles collections. Still sounds like a really fun and cool idea. Which, which part, Phil? The part where you release a bunch of rogue singles. <laughs> <laughs> but then you just have to keep compiling them and reselling them to your audience and people get annoyed by that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It worked for the Beatles and not really anybody else as far as I can tell. <laughs> right. Rob, to your point, though, about how they kind of went against what was what was going on at the time, right? Like I was looking at the songs being released at the time, and I, I think uh, Tears for Fears, they had uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World may have come out within, you know, a month or two and that album and I was thumbing through that album and yeah, it's very synth heavy, very eight. It's that eighties sound. Yeah. And this definitely does while it sounds eighties, it's not that hyper, uh, uh, produced and very electronic, very digital sounding thing. So I, I, I guess I, I can appreciate them kind of going against that trend. Well, and just to be clear, I mean, that that's a little harder to get at when we look at the context of this record specifically. So we're getting a little off the track. I'm more referring to when they kind of came out initially that they did have this guitar-driven sound at a time when, particularly in the UK, I think it was really, you know, this is Joy Division, New Order. It was okay. still coming off that kind of dance craze of the 70s thing, and they were even from the same city as Joy Division and New Order. Yeah, that, that's kind of the point I'm making. Is they, were, they were trying to be innovative, and I think that's ultimately one of the reasons they inspired a lot of people to pick up a guitar. Dude, I'm actually looking at the reception right now. I'm a little shocked at, that uh, The Queen is Dead was the number one single in the UK like two weeks after it was released. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So they were big in the UK, but never really broke into the U S yeah. I was trying to find out like what was the stuff that was like really popular around the time in the UK invisible touch by Genesis. Oh yeah. Well, so the, the song that was number one on the UK charts when this came out was a totally unnecessary cover of spirit in the sky, which I didn't know even existed. It's supposedly a new wave cover. Wait, that old 60s song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By a band called Doctor wow. and the Medics, where they <laughs> didn't change the arrangement at all. It's like barely an update. And uh, in the U.S., just for context, is the Huey Lewis song, Stuck With You. Mm. I like that song. It's such no, a it's pleasant a little ditty. I wanted you to say a cool Huey Lewis song, but... Yeah, you should, if, it was, yeah, if this is it, know. then that would have been, yeah, been great. <laughs> Oh, I'm going back to the future. I'm going back oh, yeah. to the future Power theme song. So here's uh, a here's a fun back little... to the future too. Back in time, <laughs> right. I mean, stuck with you sucks. I'm just listening to this now. This sucks. Here's a fun little yes, musical tidbit true. too, because this is like a musical lore kind of thing. I guess if you don't like any of these bands, it's not going to mean anything. But there's this famous story about the Sex Pistols' first trip to the UK, where they played a show in Manchester to like three dozen people, 
And of those three dozen people, basically everyone in the audience went out and started a band that became successful. So Marcy was in the audience. <laughs> the guys from the Buzzcocks <laughs> were in the audience. The dudes from Joy Division, literally the guy who started both Joy Division and New Order, went and bought his first guitar the day after the show. The Fall, wow. those guys were in the audience. Like it was, it was a tight knit community, and that kind of supposedly that one little show spawned a lot of stuff. It was a super spreader event. Exactly. <laughs> of course, it was. They all looked at it and they're like, "Oh, you can suck at your instrument and still be in a band." Right. And look, these guys are getting laid right. after the show. Like, I could, I yeah. in three weeks, I could sound like this on the guitar. Fagan, Fagan came through last week, and I wasn't really sure <laughs> we could make that work. <laughs> Uh, he's screaming about being off by, uh, you know, an 87th beat or something like that. Oh, my God. Could you imagine Fagan and Morrissey getting together? Again, they'd murder each other. <laughs> All right. So that would not go well. That would not go let's well. Talk, I'll just read a little bit from the reviews and then we can then we can get into uh, some of these some of these songs to continue this this conversation. So the Rolling it was favorably reviewed and it is con- very favorably thought of. So. Not that anyone on this call cares, but if you're against this album, you're not in the majority of rock critics. Rolling Stone said, Whereas previously Morrissey had sourly lectured his listeners that meat was murder, with The Queen is Dead, he's made one of the funniest rock albums ever. The shift came because he learned to express his self-loathing through mockery. Robert Christgau, famous grump, also enjoyed it. He said, after disliking their other albums instantly, I was confused enough by my instant attraction to table this one, especially since I had no stomach for the comparisons and I knew an investigation would entail. And indeed, I still can't stand the others. But here, Morrissey wears his wit on his sleeve, dishing the queen like Johnny Rotten never did, and kissing off a day job boss who's no Mr. Selleck. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about there. This makes it easier to go along with his moonier escapades, like when he reveals that looks and fame don't guarantee a good social life, which gives you time to notice the tunes, the guitars, and what he calls the backup munchkins. I assume he means the rest of the band. Oh, that's, that's a yeah, that's, hardcore that's kiss from the rest rough. of the band there. <laughs> yeah, I don't find, I mean, like, great, Morrissey hates himself, like, join the club. That doesn't necessarily mean I like your music. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I thought I was crazy with the whole like pitch thing. And I know I keep going back to that. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's probably getting annoying, but there was a, a reviewer from the Rolling Stone named JD Considine who did mention talking about this album. He talked about uh, Mars incisive visceral guitar work was great, but that Morrissey had a tendency to wander away from conventional notions of pitch, often mangling the band's melodies in the process. <laughs> I love conventional, conventional yeah. notions of pitch. You mean on pitch, off pitch, good, yeah. but anyway. Fair, but that made me enough. feel good. Like I wasn't losing my mind. So I'll, I'll leave it but, there. But like, I know we're going to talk about next. We're going to talk about The Queen is Dead. I, I actually like the lyrics on that song a lot. I like the take and the piss of the royal family. Like, screw the royal family. They're terrible. Like, it's great. I like that. Yeah, let's... So- we're talking shit on the royal family now. I'm in. Yeah, let's I'm do not. it. Come on. Let's do this. I'm thing. Team so, Megan. All right. So the working title for the album. I'm, fuck all of them. The working title for the album was Margaret on the Guillotine, and uh, <laughs> and uh, apparently the record company was like, yeah, you should probably change that, or like the <laughs> UK Secret Service is going to get involved. Although I think he later released that as a song title. But yeah, so let's talk about the Queen is Dead. So you you asked or expressed some consternation about the the opening of the the record the the sort of sample yeah that is that's from an old uh that style of music is called music hall and it's 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 from a taken from an old film but basically I, I, this took me down a little wiki wormhole so I, i'll have to just relay it to you 
which is it's kind of similar to vaudeville in the u.s but it's this idea of like the post post classical pre-recorded music era where people would get together in beer halls and drink and want to sing along and so it's the like it's the old days of those like sing-along songs where someone would kind of stand in the middle didn't always have to be music they could be mm-hmm. jugglers or whatever but they'd stand in the middle and then have these like they'd sing the verses and then they'd expect everyone to jump in on the choruses and it is an interesting kind of musical tradition that I think leads to, for instance, the stuff that we used to like, which is like Irish traditional music, like the Wild Rover or All For Me Grog, stuff like that. You know, but this is a specific style of music, a couple other kind of things. And it's, it's very English, right, in its, in its approach. So Morrissey calls back to this style a couple times on the record, or I guess you could argue Johnny Marr does. That sample is one. But basically the other two songs that everyone more or less said they hated with the kind of umpa beat is a direct yep. reference to this older kind of style of like beer hall music. That's frankly, Mr. Shankly and uh Vicar and a tutu, which to me is the throwaway song of the record. But I like frankly, Mr. Shankly. Frankly, Mr. Shankly definitely stood out to me as having interesting lyrics. I find it interesting that you're saying it sort of harkens back to like some, what I'm understanding is like, a, yeah, the English version of vaudeville meets polka. Yeah. Because I heard it as some, I heard it as some weird British misunderstanding of like American folk, right? Like the sort of like, you know, playing the bass line with your thumb, you know, finger style yep. guitar. Um, so that makes sense that I'm just hearing it out of context. I said pre-recorded. What I meant is pre-jazz. Before jazz made things cool, this was what entertainment was like. If you didn't <laughs> yeah, want to go yeah, and okay. sit at the symphony and you wanted to drink and have a good time, you know, before there were jazz clubs, you would go into this. This was your option. Yeah, and yeah. There, was, there was American versions, there was French versions. Moulin Rouge is effectively a music hall in a, in a French context, and people like Edith Piaf would be an example of singers who came out of that system, right? But it's particularly a big part of English culture. So I just wanted to reference that there's, a, there's some better songs written by a man named Paul McCartney that also make a lot of reference to this. One is When I'm 64, and one is Your Mother Should Know, Maxwell oh, yeah. Silverhammer. Yeah. Basically, these are all, in, you know, I got an article of Paul McCartney kind of saying, yeah, this is all like my tribute to this kind of music hall style. So I think it is a little bit hard as Americans to maybe recapture that. It's also a generational thing, but it was definitely a conscious choice to harken back to this, this other style of music, which is definitely corny by today's standards. Anyway, on to The Queen is Dead, right? So yeah, I guess initial thoughts. I feel like I'm, I'm talking plenty. I like the song. I think it rocks. I think the lyrics are funny. And I think Marcy is self-aware. The queen, he breaks into the palace and the queen tells him he can't sing. So that yep. supports your theory, yeah. Adam. And he says, that's nothing. You should hear me play piano. I highlighted that on the sh- lyrics. <laughs> I think it's funny. It's just, it's funny to me. Yeah. So I liked it. Thoughts? I like that he called out Charles, by the way. Oh, I like that as lo- a lot too. By the way, talk yeah. about worst prediction ever. The queen is dead. Twenty five years later, she's still here giving you. Uh, Thirty five years later, yeah, giving yeah. you the finger like, "Hey, Morrissey, I might actually outlive you." <laughs> yeah, the line is, "Charles, don't you ever crave to appear on the front of the Daily Mail dressed in your mother's bridal veil?" And then he says, "No one talks about castration when you're tied to your mother's apron." Yeah, yeah, he's Bo- pretty, I mean, pretty funny. I mean, you can't really get yeah, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Yeah, he's basically talking about breaking in and, and murdering a, a monarch with a with a, a wrench, you know? I think that's what he's talking about, a rusty spanner. Yeah. No, I listen, I I like I said, I like the taking the piss of the lyrics. There is one thing 
I wrote down the the time stamp on this one too. There and Adam, you're probably gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like right at a minute and forty six seconds in there, where he's singing the line about um, some tough nine year old who peddles drugs. I swear to God, I swear I never even knew what drugs were. There is such a like his his voice cracks into a sour <laughs> note on yes, there i totally know what you're talking it's about so bad and like <laughs> yeah. if you're telling me that he did that on purpose that was a terrible choice to do that it just it's just like <laughs> so i never that, even knew what drugs were and you could go back and fix it it's the title track of the album in that in, in that uh <laughs> that, that interview that rob was talking about uh the engineer said something that he loved it because Morrissey would come in and he he didn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio. <laughs> so usually like one or two takes was his max because he didn't want to spend all day in there. I'm like, yeah, that checks out. That uh, absolutely rings true. He's so got I uh, know exactly what you're talking about. You know, uh, romantic partners to not sleep with. Um, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> At some point, we'll talk about one of my favorite records called Teatro by Willie Nelson. They talk about how the, produ- the producer, Daniel Lenoir, talked about how he uh, also didn't want Willie Nelson doing too many takes. So he just told Willie to sit on the bus and smoke joints. <laughs> and Willie obliged. And then when the band was ready, he'd bring him in for a take or two. They'd Call do it, day, no right? rehearsal, and they send him back to the bus to smoke joints. They recorded the record in like 10 or 11 days, and Willie just sat on the bus smoking joints. So, Big interruption yeah. from his normal routine. Right. <laughs> Big interruption from his normal routine. So I, I find that, yeah, I find that very believable that Marcy wasn't a great studio uh, workman. And we mentioned earlier the, the producer, this guy, Stephen Street, who was kind of friends with the band, basically got his break with the band. So it is right to say that this was early in his career as, a, as an engineer and a producer, kind of co-produced it with the Smiths. And so I think some of those questionable decisions need to be assigned to him. Although, worth mentioning, he did go on to have a, a bit of a career. He produced all of the Blur records. It's another English band that Americans mostly don't mm-hmm. know. And the Cranberries records that we all listened to in the 90s. I totally hear that. I totally hear the Cranberries. Especially in the way that there's a lot of like the jigga-jing guitars right at the beginning. Like, like a big, a big mm-hmm. in on like a chorus. Sometimes it's like an acoustic guitar and a heavily chorused balls clean electric guitar. Totally hear that, that influence. So the one thing that I will say is uh, a bit different from... Uh, you know the 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 cranberries mixing and uh the the mixing for uh the smiths like Dolores O'Riordan has a fantastic voice but like sure. they don't push her out in front as far as Morrissey was pushed out in front in this mix and i like you can again I, I, yeah, I, I really had a hard time getting over like i said very inconsistent mixing on the album like i can't even hear the guitar on some of these tracks yeah i i think and then some more context maybe i think it was it's right to say it was done in a very indie way. They didn't have a lot of support from their label. They were on a very small label called Rough Trade, which, so the story of Rough Trade is that they were basically founded the first, in the early 80s, the Smiths were their first big get. They released the first Smiths record and signed them to a contract effectively for the rest of their career, you know, one of those early contract things, and then struggled as a, as a record label all through the 80s. And so Marcy was very fond of complaining about how they, they weren't able to support or promote the band or give them much. I think that's probably why they ended up with kind of a neighborhood friend at the helm of the production and ultimately doing a lot of this stuff 
themselves. So that's in that sense, it is kind of indie, but I agree it was uh, it's not as polished as it could be. So and they were contractually, you said, contractually obligated to this to this almost number of records. always failing uh, record label, right? So they're they hit basically hitched their whatever it is horse to the wrong wagon or something. Correct. Like yeah. So interestingly, so then Rough Trade shortly after, so they already kind of the band already kind of hated each other after they made this record, but they were contractually obligated to make one more. So they kind of easy breezy made one more and then broke up forever. The label then folded shortly after that or filed for bankruptcy. They later relaunched in the 90s and then had a ton of success. They like released the first Strokes EP. They've like released stuff by Arcade Fire, My Morning Jacket, stuff like that. So you may have heard of them now, but they were kind of struggling at that time. And the Smiths were their only bread and butter. That's part of the reason, but it's, yeah. It's evocative of that uh, Monty Python's contractually obligated second album, which I don't know, I think it's a fantastic name <laughs> for an album. <laughs> We've talked a lot about Morrissey, but like you're saying Johnny Marr wrote all these songs as far as we know. Basically. Yeah, correct. He's listed as the writer of the music, which I believe encompasses melody, but I'm, I've never been super clear on that. But yeah, the way their writing process would typically work was Johnny Marr would write everything and then he'd sort of hand it to Morrissey and Morrissey would dash off lyrics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found this first song, like I found The Queen is Dead to be a particularly striking song harmonically. Basically, like when I was listening to it, it just felt like the key was changing all the time, subtly. Maybe that was made more confusing by Marcy's <laughs> approach, we'll call Unique it. Unique appreciation of pitch. Yeah, yeah. The way he's like, you know, just kind of slipping I around. Think what I, I think one know? of the things Johnny Marr does on this song and also maybe on some other parts of the record is it seems like he's, I think he's experimenting with different tunings on that acoustic guitar. So there might be some like, you know, mm, because there, it does feel like a weird collision of guitar, rhythm guitar on some of these these parts. And he kind of gets his little jagged edges in there. But I wonder if that's where that's coming from. Yeah, I also like I'm actually just looking at the song chart now and there is a minor chord in the song. So I would have guessed wrong. But upon listening to it, I thought like this is all major chords, which, you know, just can sound really, yeah, edgy. Right. When a chord has six or seven different major chords with no minor chords of any kind to tie them together. Right. So, yeah, this this one really stood out to me as an odd precursor to like both Nirvana and Radiohead in that just unique use, I'd say, of major chords, you know, like minor thirds apart and sixths apart. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was really. I, I hear some of that OK computer in there too, in the guitar specifically, and that kind of controlled noise, heavy rhythm, mm-hmm. le, you know, less emphasis on on solo lines and things like that. Another interesting tidbit is that right after the Smiths broke up, Johnny Marr went and joined Talking Heads, but he plays guitar on Nothing But Flowers and a couple other songs on Naked. And I think if you listen to the guitar work on that and listen to some of the stuff you'll you'll definitely hear his kind of distinctive rhythm lead sort of style which is pretty interesting that's quite a different uh <laughs> tonally different uh genre than uh you know you go from doing the smiths to doing like the most like almost like what big bandy sounding uh talking heads album another idiosyncratic singer that's probably kind of warbly <laughs> Yeah, and by all accounts, kind of a nightmare to work with. <laughs> and yet, I love him. Yeah, I do love him, too. I would I would much rather work with Danny Burns. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't think there's any comparison. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, we should listen to a little bit of The Queen is Dead now. So I broke into the palace with a sponge and a rusty spanner. She said, I know you and you cannot sing. I said, that's nothing. You should hear me play the other. We can go for a walk where it's quiet and dry and talk about precious things. But when you're tired to your mother's apron, no one talks about frustration. Any other thoughts on the song before we move on? So I I was reading and and something that that stuck out to me uh, were the drums on this track. And I was reading that at the time, I think the most they had was like a one and a half second sampler. Uh, So he managed to capture a Tom fill and then just basically looped that for the entire track. Because you can imagine a drummer just literally riding the toms for four and a half minutes or whatever it is that it's actually a loop, which, which mm. was used very effectively as well. And he said, whenever you hear that cut out, it's not the drummer stopping. It was him just not looping for that, you know, portion of the song and then bringing it back up. So it was a cool, cool use of a looped, uh, drum fill essentially through, throughout the course of the song. So I did appreciate that. Definitely did not pick it, up. Yeah, that's that. cool. I didn't pick yeah. that up. I mean, I know what you're talking about, like the sort of like polyrhythm, mm-hmm. but yeah, I didn't pick that up as a loop. That's cool. Cool. So let's, uh, moving right along, let's go to the next song we agreed to chat about, which is I Know It's Over. It's already been brought up as simultaneously an example of Marcy's amazing singing performance and also his terrible singing performance. I'll throw it to the group. Any other, any other comments on this? To me, this is a sort of a quintessential Marcy song, like sort of whether you like it or not. There's one other song on here that I think is the most Smiths, the, the epitome of the Smiths. But this one really feels like, what people who think they don't like Morrissey are expecting. Yeah, I would say that's true. It was validated in my not liking of Morrissey. I, I, I will say that the the bass sound on this, I, I think they did a really good capture of the bass sound, but they might have almost done too good of a capture because you can hear yeah, a lot of string noise. Yeah, it feels like it's a noise. DI. Yeah, yeah. you hear a yeah. lot of string noise on there. And um, maybe it's just a that these types of tricks weren't commonly known back then. But I feel like it's the kind of thing that it's certainly the internet era, there'd be like a million and one little things you could find out of, of ways to like reduce that kind of stuff. But I can, it is very interesting context. They're telling me that they were just like underfunded the whole time because that definitely comes across. And that's why I was like, Oh, how is this not their first album? It's their third album. Like they're an established band at this point, but yeah, underfunded makes sense with little things like that. That's the kind of thing that, like, we've talked before about. You're you're in a studio with a guy who just like knows his equipment and knows. Every, they're like the wizard, and they're just like, you need this to happen. We do this, and that makes such a huge difference from like the engineering and production standpoint. And very clearly, that was not going on here. Yeah, agreed. I would say this one in particular. I like this song a lot. It's definitely a roll up your windows song, but I feel like this melody <laughs> runs through my head. And but this one in particular, writing wise, reminds me of a Violent Femmes song. So this is really the one that kind of reminded me of that other record. I, did, I I found no evidence that these two bands knew about each other, influenced each other. Because I don't, I'm not sure. Was it? Well, we'll save that for another podcast. Whether the Violent Femmes record in '83 actually was a smash hit or not, because I feel like it was still on the radio when we were in high school. Totally, and Blister in the Sun was huge in 83 though because it might have been one of those sleeper hits anyway point is it it had a similar angsty vibe and i that's this is the thing that specifically brought me to thinking of that band as being kind of purposefully effeminate you know challenging traditional conventions of how an arrangement should work violent femmes arrangements also sound 
strange compared to other rock music. Uh, I agree. I like the Violent Femmes album better overall, but there's they they seem like they traffic in similar waters to me. Without getting too far off the topic, Rob, I also liked this song. This was one of the the ones that I wrote down. It's like I thought this song was fabulous. This gave me almost like ah uh, oh God, what's his name? I had it a second ago. You guys are blathering about something. <laughs> Chris Isaac. Chris Isaac. It almost gave me like a. 80s British Chris Isaac vibe. Like, again, I know he's not like the sexy, you know, in tune baritone that Adam needs. But, you know, but, but there's something about it that, yeah, I just find very charming, for lack of a better word. I think he's withholding. So I commented earlier that there's a, the end of this song is him withholding a note that you feel that you want to resolve the melody. But I think that's a good metaphor for how he approaches the whole thing. He's withholding as a performer. He's kind of putting it out there, but he's kind of drawing back. His singing style is also withholding. Like he's, I'm almost there, but I'm out of reach. I'm a, I am, you know, I have a nice build, but I'm also celibate. So hands off. It's, it fits with his whole thing. But to me, yes, this is a great example of why he's a good singer, not a bad singer. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Cool, let's listen to that part right now. that's done any other comments you ch- have we changed any hearts and minds yet <laughs> no well I, I i didn't talk much on that one because i just feel i'm just going to be repeating myself because yeah. there there's one or two extremely egregious offenses in this song that again it it kind of turned me off and i had a hard time you know it's not until i went back and looked at the lyrics and i was like oh like again uh, uh, uh phil like you were saying like if Chris Isaac had come in and sang this <laughs> on top of the, the same song, I probably would have fallen in love with it. So maybe that's a blockage for me yeah. or I'm just awesome. Um, <laughs> you, but, just, you just need things to be into. I just need. I'm actually. But, but, <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead, please. No, no, no. Bro, I'm actually curious to understand why I don't feel that way. Because, listen, we all play music. I care about things being in tune. I've been mm-hmm. that person in the studio when the engineer saying pitchy. Still pitchy, right, still pitchy, right. still pitchy, and you want to rip your hair out. But dude, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm not. I don't really even hear what the heck you're talking about, man. I just don't. That's interesting. You know yeah, what's funny? I, I, I literally, Rob, you just opened up this world to me that I've never even thought of before. Of like you're in the studio and you're singing and the engineer's like you're pitching you're like fuck you I don't care and how freeing would that be how amazing would that be that you're not doing forty seven takes done. to try to yeah. you're like no I don't care yeah. I did three takes I'm done you don't know I'm me sorry guys yeah I'm, that's a style <laughs> choice slander style choice slander and libel yeah <laughs> you're fired <laughs> right next it's like God, Jimmy Page not playing on the beat you know. <laughs> are we gonna try to work in a jimmy page diss on every podcast from here on out because i'm totally I, on board for that i think it's worthwhile i if, if if we can do that okay 
We should, we should, we've got to, over time, we got to assemble Adam's anti-supergroup. It sounds so, <laughs> British, British anti-supergroup. It sounds like so far I got Morrissey on vocals, Jimmy Page on <laughs> Let's keep going. And, but Rob, you bring up an interesting point about, right, art. The moment you say something is art, you can't argue with it, right? Like somebody th- throws a piece of mud on the wall and you say, well, that looks like crap. Hey, it's art. And you go, all right, well, somebody's going to think it's beautiful. Is there some aspect we all talk about, like pushing against the, the you, you're put in a box and to be creative, you find ways to push on the box or whatever. Are there laws and rules that must apply? And, and does it depend on the art form? Because I think about cooking, right? You could be an amazing cook and I read the menu and, oh my God, this looks amazing. And the guy brings it out and goes, oh, well, I only cook my chicken to 65 degrees. Is it a good meal still? Or if on the, the menu is some wonderful ice cream, right? And they bring out the dessert and it's boiling. And he says, oh, well, that's just my interpretation of ice cream, right? Like I, I'm trying to find the, uh, the corollary to music because it doesn't really work in visual arts and painting and stuff. But are there rules to music that must be adhered to before you go the Yoko Ono route, which is like, well, she's noise, but she's art. She calls herself a singer. I can't argue because she said it's art. I have a strong opinion. Go, let me hear it. Yeah, absolutely. No, there are not rules. You, that is completely okay. antithetical to what art means. Now that does not mean that I have to like it. I mean, it is definitely, right. I think art is totally in the eye of the beholder. So that's perfectly fine. Like that's to me, that is entirely the point to not to a not have rules to bound you and thus be as creative as you like, or as terrible as you like, or whatever, and B, to leave it up to the audience. That's what the audience does. That's their function. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I would say that I have, yeah, I have rules for myself of what I like about art. I like to think that I keep myself relatively open to reexamining those rules and finding new mm-hmm. things that I like that I didn't previously like. This was not one of them, but I do appreciate <laughs> the fact that if everybody was following a sort of proscribed set of rules, you never would get revolutions in music. Anything revolutions cool. in music right. are awesome. Right, right. I, I, but I mean, not to harp on it, but I'm just, I guess I'm surprised that none of these complaints actually registered to me. It's not like I was overlooking them and saying, I'll forgive that. I just... It, other than him being a quirky singer, this doesn't strike me as odd in the catalog of all the other music I've listened to. I, I don't know. Have we talked about Neil Young yet? Neil Young's another warbly singer. Doesn't bother sure. me in the least. Not even a little bit. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, a good, that's a good reference. Yeah. That is a good reference. I think Neil Young writes better songs, number one. Uh, I think a lot of it is the persona and the delivery. I don't like, I just don't like the persona. I don't like the delivery, but that coupled with like, I don't like Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger seems like a douchebag to me, but I'm not going to say he's not a good front man. And I'm not going to say that he doesn't like put the appropriate singing to the songs. I don't even, I just don't think the singing is appropriate for these songs. And this song particularly, I know it's over. Am I supposed to read these lyrics as wry and like unserious? Cause it's just whiny teenager crap. Like, it's really like my girlfriend broke up with me and I'm sad. That's, that's <laughs> the only thing that I can take from this. That's I don't like, that's all of pop music though. Like I, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Pop music. I get it. I, I wanted to, I would just wanted to, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of like why it doesn't bother me with the thing that bothers Adam and, and Tom specifically. Sure. You can certainly, it's fine to launch an argument that these songs aren't that great or, you know, various other things mm-hmm. like you just said. Yeah, that's totally subjective. I well, here's maybe, maybe a path to finding out the answer to that. You, you mentioned this a couple of times, Adam. I know you're probably a lot like me. 
when I'm driving in the car and I'm singing along to a song, I'm never singing the main line. I'm always singing the harmony. I view singing as a group exercise <laughs> at its best that has to work together with multiple things. And I think Morrissey is coming at this like, almost like I am my own instrument and I don't have to be adhering to anything else that anybody else is doing. And I am sort of like, and that to me is antithetical to what I like and appreciate. Now that's music. interesting. If they, if he had released this album as not a spoken word, but as just him acapella, right? Okay. But you're right. The fact that it's, it's in this mix that has all these other uh, attributes to it. Yeah, that's that, that's an interesting thought. And Rob, to 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 kind of thinking about how I was introduced to music and why it feels like a drill in my ears when these things are not right on. My dad used to tune pianos as a side gig, yeah. and I would go with him occasionally. And if you've ever listened to a, t a piano being tuned, it's three hours of somebody in your house going, and you can eventually hear the whoa, 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 and then you know you got it, right? Then that, then that one of the three strings is on, and he does that whole bunch. He also had a t an old school 1980s tuning machine that had the the dials on it, and I would walk up to it, and I would like sing a note, and I would watch the the thing spin, 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 and eventually stop, and be like, oh, I just hit it the I hit the C. All right, what's next? So I feel like early, you know, early on, like seven to nine years old, like I was doing that and learning to sing harmonies with my dad. So I think maybe wow. just foundationally, that perfect pitch thing is like in my subconscious that I have a hard time getting past it. I think those are two great possibility, possible answers to the question or, you know, varied answers to the question that I was really posing. I have no problem believing that Adam and Tom and Phil even you know, that your ears are more tuned to what's in pitch than mine are. That's easy. It's super easy for me to accept. See, see, Rob, like I would, I'd put myself at the opposite end of the scale. Like I, it didn't bother me at all. Marcy's voice doesn't bother me at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are times, especially towards the end of some of the songs where he's sort of going off where he gets pretty weird, you know, but like maybe it's because I listened to more, jazz uh maybe it's i don't know but it, it doesn't bother me at all in the same way that like bad chords don't bother me it's just like oh yeah it's just that's just the chord i'm i'm able to just not question the this, choice for this whatever. isn't a person i necessarily want to tie to marcy so take it with a grain of salt but another thing that occurs to me is that from a very young age i was leaned on bob dylan and then for the subsequent 20 years of my life i would constantly hear people talk about how they couldn't get into bob dylan's amazing Nobel Prize winning songwriting because of his voice. And I always just thought that was a ridiculous proposal. So I, that's <laughs> sure. somewhere deep in there because my parents were huge Bob Dylan fans. And that was, that was kind of my baseline. So I grew up listening to Fozzie Bear a lot. So you'd think that I'd be super into Morrissey. <laughs> <laughs> He's funny too. All right, moving on. Big Mouth Strikes Again. This was the single. It, was, uh, it, it did fairly well. And I think it's kind of one of their, their signature songs. This is the one, yeah, so this is the one where I looked in and, you know, Marcy, or sorry, Mar, Johnny Mar is using those different tunings overlaid, but again, I think he kind of did that a few times. I know he did this other thing in there where he would use, like, amp feedback through a wah-wah pedal. It was very DIY, but he's trying to get a weird pastiche of, of like, rhythm guitar sounds. Uh, to me, I, I like Big Mouth Strikes Again. It's probably the first song I ever heard by the Smiths. I think it's Marcy acknowledging his own ridiculous persona or persecution complex like we talked about, that now I know how Joan of Arc felt. 
he's comparing, you know, people in the press complaining about how ridiculous he is or how fey he is with Joan of Arc being burnt at the stake. But he's doing it tongue in cheek. He knows it's insane. He, he is the big mouth in the song. I hope that's clear. And, you know, to me, it, it jumped out right away, even kind of the first few times I heard it when I when I didn't like it. It took a little getting into because it talks about murder. Just something about pop songs that refer to murder, about smashing every tooth in your head or bludgeoning you in your bed. To me, just just it kind of speaks to my weirdness factor of music. So this song has always been important to me in that sense. You put this song in a mix that you gave to me a long time ago. And uh, that was also my first introduction to the Smiths. And I like this song. I think that this is the song where... The mixing is appropriate. The delivery is much tighter than in a lot of it's like it gets a little bit on the at the end. He gets a little swingy on that, but his delivery, generally speaking, is much tighter on this song. And so I I I dig this song. I think this song is well constructed. I think it is funny. I think that this song I do read it as rye and it comes and it works. Um, I don't necessarily read a lot of the other songs that way. But I have no problem reading this as Rye because it is such a clearly a ridiculous premise of like, I'm going to tell you me just murder, but I'm going to bash somebody's skull in when they're sleeping. This is my favorite track on the album, actually. So it's interesting, Rob, that this was the first one that hooked you. And this is the first yeah. one that stood out to me on this album as, as a very solid tune. Yeah, and it's a rocker and you could argue and it's kind of short like a single should be so they don't overindulge right. in some of those things. Oh, sweetness, sweetness, I was only joking when I said by rights you should be bludgeoned in your bed. And now I know my Joan of Arc Now I know my Joan of Arc As the flames rose to a Roman nose I noticed something about this, the, this song, and actually the one prior, Cemetery Gates. Uh, it didn't really hit me upon first listen. Maybe Big Mouth did a little bit, not Cemetery Gates so much. It wasn't until I was sort of poking around on the, on the record later. I think they both actually remind me a lot of other songs. Big Mouth Strikes Again gives me an, uh, the beginning, just the first like intro, gives me big time heart crazy yes. on you yeah, vibes. I went and looked at it, yeah, yep. Yeah, so I was, I was curious if, you know, that heart, you know, how close heart was to that. Can't imagine the Smiths were influenced by heart. I don't hear that. But then the other one, Cemetery Gates is hilarious because if you go back and listen to it, it sounds like, uh, only want to be with you by Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> which I also just I can't imagine Hootie being into this. But if you listen to it, like it's there, it's right there in front listen, of you. His name is Darius Rucker. He's not Hootie. He's There's not no Hootie. Hootie. There's no Blowfish. That's just the name of the band. There's no Jethro Tull in that band either. <laughs> Look, you and Hootie and Steely Dan and Jethro Tull can all, you know. Go do something. Again. All right. Sounds like we all agree it's <laughs> an instant finish. classic. I, I guess we I guess we should move this this party along. So on to there is a light that never goes out. I'll start by saying I like the song a lot, and I think it is the quintessential Smith song. It gets a couple pieces it, uh, that I like about the Smiths. It gets it's organized like a single. It has a chorus. It has a layered melodies. 
and it is about longing and it's romanticizing something dark, right? But I, I really love the melody line, uh, particularly in the chorus and particularly the kind of counter melody that comes in on the organ a couple times. To me, this is the Smiths. I, I believe it would be safe to say this has become one of their signature songs, you know, that, that people associate with them most uh, thoroughly, partially because of the kind of even more so than Big Mouth Strikes Again, which was a single. This is like the mood of the Smiths. That's what I'm trying to say. Adam, you look was like this on a movie like, soundtrack? I'm sure it was on many movie soundtracks. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, I thought that this was one verse away from a Weird Al song, which is the next verse. He talks about like dysentery <laughs> and then their eyes fall out and then a plague of locusts eats their bones. And then he goes into like, but it's lovely to die next to you or whatever. Uh, so that was it. But then I, I was looking more uh, about it and I felt bad that I went that to that spot because I've, I've read some stuff online that said that uh, some people think, think that this song is about being gay and being in love with another na- man, but not knowing how to express it because everyone from the outside is telling you that you're wrong and all that stuff. So when I went back and listened to that, I actually kind of like it. So I, that's my, it, it, it's deep. If you, if you think about it from, from that aspect, it's pretty deep. That's my understanding of the song to the line. Okay. I mean, it's my guess, right? But that, that, that fits what they're trying to get across. The In the darkened underpass, I thought, oh, God, my chance had come at last. But then a strange right. fear gripped me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, it is so. And by the way, I don't think it's an insult to call it a Weird Al song. <laughs> Maybe this is a little <laughs> digression, but I think Weird Al, I know what you're trying to say. But Weird Al is, A, respected by everyone here in the studio. And B, I think he takes his parody songs quite seriously. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think he takes his original song. I, there are many Weird Al originals that I love. And really I will, I will right. really I will yep. go to bat for them against right. many, many very popular singles and say, no, this Weird Al original is better. You know, I, I, I think it's John Bon Jovi, but there is a famous rocker in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who's apparently been trying to organize a bit of a petition within the rock community to induct Weird Al. Unless he was inducted, unless that's an old story. I, I think I would, <laughs> would have known that. Okay, but to Adam's point, to, to Adam's interpretation of the song, and which is also mine, I think that probably tells you a lot about why it's been taken up as a sort of a quintessential, sort of a flagship song that means a lot to a lot of people, since clearly a lot of people have gone through that experience. This was a, you know, this was a different time. And yeah, I do think that's what they were singing about. You know, I don't hate this song, and I agree that this is like a good vehicle for what the Smiths are trying to get across. Um, I think that they, yeah, they achieved what they were trying to achieve on this song. Because I think Big Mouth Strikes Again is not very indicative of the Smiths' overall sound. You're right, this is indicative of the Smiths' overall sound. I think that the I don't have as many problems with the production on this one. I don't particularly like what they're going for, but it is fully realized in this song. Yeah, you know, I didn't read up anything about the motivation behind writing it. It did seem a little whiny to me, but upon like the whole sort of like uh, the the thing that initially stuck out to me was like, 
I never, never want to go home because I haven't got one. And he's like, please don't drop me home because it's not my home. It's their home. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, you're 26 years old. It is your parents' home. That's actually their house. You should have your own place. (laughs) (laughs) Go get a job. Stop being drunk. No argument here. It's whiny. The whole thing is whiny. But I can see that. I can can see that from the standpoint of like, no, I'm saying a metaphor that like society, I don't have a home in society. So I'll give that to them. If that's what he was trying to approach. I also had no context on the Marcy's questionable sexuality, like, you know, I knew about the celibacy thing and I guess, yeah, if I was, if I had given it more thought, it would make sense that like, that wasn't a society where he could just be like, no, I'm super gay and I love it. And so let's do that. So if he was gay, it'd make more sense to just say like, well, I'm just not, I'm just not screwing anybody right now. Right. Yeah. So I didn't examine it with any kind of depth. I guess that it comes across as less whiny. If there is typical. something like that behind it. Yes, it is typical. I'm a cis, <laughs> cis white male. Well, film. can we just acknowledge that on top of whatever, happened to be going on with Marcy's sexuality, he is just a weird person. I, I think yeah. that's undisputed. Yeah. He's a weirdo. He's a fame war. The other thing that I will say is that uh, they really do just repeat a line over and over and over and over again at the end of songs kind of a lot. And that sort of, when you hit that that's point a in the very song, fair yeah, that's you a hit very that point in the bigger. song, and it's like, okay, now I'm just going to hear this 14 more times because this is just what you guys do. All right. Anyway, that's not a huge critique, but yeah. I think, but interestingly though, they use the they use this song structure trope frequently, and they use it here, which is that the name of the song doesn't come up until the end, and that's when they harp on it. You know, yes. like they they do that a couple times, right? Where they kind of they do have a chorus, but they sort of withhold the name or the, the the tagline of the song, and then they they drop it in the end. But yeah, I assume that's Marcy's lyrical laziness. I think that's fair. Well, I, I also picture it as they could have just ended the song, but he's like, no, I need to vamp. Like I need to have my voice out there vamping over this line again and again and giving it just very slightly different emotions on each time. And that's really what's going to make this song a, a classic. So theory, here's a theory. I could suffer through this record for the same reason I can suffer through a long fish jam, right? There's something about the tension and release that I, for whatever reason I find interesting. Right. There's something about that buildup that I, I find interesting, whereas other people like just give me give me the fucking real thing or give me nothing at all. Right. Like, Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, Tension yeah. release is a big part of this. And I, you know, say what you will. We already talked to death Marcy's voice over this stuff. But I like that the band kind of loops. I like the underpinning musical aspect of some of these songs, even moving into the last song momentarily that they kind of have these droney loops. To me, that is a very interesting version of music that I could kind of, I kind of get tranced out to. And I like that. So that, that is just, I will just say that's appealing to me in other, in other bands too. Take me anywhere. Don't care. Don't care. Don't care. And in the dark and underpass, I thought, Oh God, my chance has come at last. Then a strange fear gripped me and I just couldn't ask Cool, moving on to the last song on the record, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others. I shan't speak first. Who wants to go? Adam? This song blows. It it felt like a throwaway tune. and And I... I didn't go deeper into any lyrical meanings or anything like that. 
it just felt very oh, wait, hold, hold on, hold on. You didn't go deeper into any <laughs> lyrical meanings? There's like four lines to this song, all right? Well, I don't know if maybe there's some other Smith references for their first, you know, couple albums. I Whatever. But yeah, it just didn't do anything for me. Kind of a low note to, to, to end the album on. That's my my two cents. You know, Adam, I, I definitely do agree with you on this one. It felt like a throwaway. I think a lot of albums can end on a throwaway, right? Like a sort of folky, underproduced song. Uh, Abbey Road ends that sure. way, right? And it's nice. This is not that, right? <laughs> this is... Um, it's not, I mean, I don't find it to be terrible. Right, it's, um, it's I not think a bad... Ba- you know, yeah. It's really this like just... This is a bad song. It's, I was just going to say it's painfully mediocre i mean it's just yeah. like yeah there's some chords there's a drum there's some ride yes. symbol that comes in with 30 seconds left which was about the only interesting thing that kind of caught my ear i was like oh a change i didn't read this specifically but what it sounds like to me is a song that was an instrumental and then marcy put lyrics on it after the fact you know and there's not a lot going on in the instrumentation yeah i'll, I'll just say I, I i like it but i don't quite know why i like it i mean i sort of agree with your guys's criticisms but i do like the instrumentation of it and i think there's a terrible production choice slash mistake at the beginning that that interrupts the groove of it but i like i like the groove of it i like stuff in that vein it reminds me of you guys this might be a little bit of an obscure record but do you know that sun kill moon record uh carry me ohio it reminds me a little of that kind of loop where there's this like trancy guitar riff going around and around anyway i was thinking a bit more of some of those like uh clap your hands say yes songs from back in the day that were just kind of like uh you know again not a not a ton going on and talk about another guy with a really quirky voice um you know singing over quirky meaning pitchy right quirky meaning uh yeah, his voice is pitchy. His voice yeah, is extremely I, pitchy. But and I don't listen. I can't listen to a whole album worth of their stuff. I'll doesn't bother me. But actually, that's a. I think that's a good touchstone. The other thing I wanted to slip in is that you know Johnny Moore in the two thousands joined Modest Mouse, and for like an album after it was this is after Float On or whatever. And but it, that made me think, and I don't think the record he made with them is particularly great, uh, versus like the earlier Modest Mouse stuff that I think we all enjoyed at least a bit. But I, it did occur to me that the guitar style on bands like Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, Modest Mouse, what I personally had come to think of as that like early 2000s indie rock guitar style, reminds me a lot of Johnny Marr's guitar style. You know what I mean? So I think they, I, I can almost guarantee you that those guys would say they were influenced by uh, his guitar playing. And that's ultimately why when he called and said, can I join the band? I said, yeah, of course, please join the band. He called, he called them? <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know yeah. how it went down. Okay. <laughs> that's I, I didn't know that you could just do that as like <laughs> it's ballsy hey can i be in your band can i join your established whoever? band i'm someone you've heard of <laughs> yeah i'd like to make a lot of money on a tour that sounds good <laughs> i noticed you're another lead singer with a weird affect yeah <laughs> and personal problems deep personal problems yeah there's i just feel like there's like nothing to this song really it, it just felt like a throwaway and uh, I know that Rob, you and I have a dispute about this, but I, I, I think the lyrics in this song are particularly terrible. And <laughs> I think they're hilarious. Like, I don't listen. I can't really defend this one in the way that it's certainly not as good as "There Is Light That Will Never Go Out." And, you know, just all objectively speaking. But I do like it. I like the groove of it. The record would be better if it ended with the previous song. I, I can't argue that point. 
but something about the line, some girls are bigger than others, as throwaway as it is, just kind of just cracks me up. It's not even a joke. I don't know why I like it. I just think it's funny. <laughs> some I girls' like mothers are bigger order. than other girls' mothers? <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, it honestly could be a fish song. You know, like, it just randomly thrown together words. They just, like, threw, word, threw darts at a dartboard that had some words on there. And they were like, okay, we'll put it over a groove. Well, I would like, like the I line. I don't know if that random. He likes calling women uh, chubby. Yeah. Right. Listen, I would like <laughs> the line if it wasn't for the fact that he says it so many times. Right. He just get he beats it to death. It's by the, the crux yeah. of the song, right? I it's get the it. the entire it's, song. It's, it is a bit inconsequential, but I'm just saying, for whatever reason, it's kind of seeped into my consciousness. Mostly because of the, I do like that kind of droney loop that they're doing as a band. Or it's not quite a loop, but you know what I mean. To the dollars, there is but one concern. I have just discovered some girls are bigger than others. Some girls are bigger than others. Some girls' mothers are bigger cool. Than well, I think that's all the songs we wanted to talk about today. All that remains is for us to decide. Is it going on the list or is it not going on the list? The list being 1,001 albums you must hear before you die. So I will kick it to the group, Tomas. Listen, I hated this album. I did not like it at all. I found it to be um, borderline unlistenable. I also think that it does make the list because I can absolutely see how it spawned a bunch of other bands to create a sound that and and they, they weren't the originators of it if we're going back farther i'd probably give that to the violent femmes to, to but either way they were clearly very influential they as you said they could have they could arguably be that they spawned indie rock generally and uh that sort of lo-fi indie rock i didn't like the album but i can see why this album had ripple effects through history so I would say you probably have to listen to it so that you can appreciate better albums more. All right. So, Tom, after this discussion, I am grudgingly or begrudgingly, whatever it is, uh, I'm going to land on, on, on the same thing. So I did not like this album. I probably won't listen to it again. Uh, learning of the background, the history. Yeah. Again, even just to, to listen to something so you can deter... Listen to this one so you can determine... If pitch matters to you, if, if, if it's okay. And I don't mean that like, I'm sorry, that sounded like a dick thing to say. No, <laughs> if, you, if good music matters to you, listen to this so you can find out if you're an idiot. I don't mean it like that. I mean, like, it's a good uh, litmus test just to see like what, you know, what you like, what you don't like, what's, what's important, what's going to wind up on your playlist in 10 years and 15 years or right now. So yeah. It's definitely not on my playlist. I probably won't listen to many other Smiths albums either. But yes, let's let's uh, let's, let's keep it on here, and and you can get in it yourself. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I am definitely going yes on this record. I came in pretty, I would say, definitely glasses half empty on the Smiths, just based on my limited experience and mostly my knowledge of like Marcy's pop culture persona. Uh, you know, which we've all stated is obnoxious. 
But I was just surprised by it. I was intrigued by the way the Queen is Dead, the first track, kicked in. Uh, as much as I disliked songs like, frankly, Mr. Shankly and Vicar and a Tutu, and there's probably another one that really stood out as, like, I particularly disliked. Even the ones I disliked, I found interesting. And I, honestly, I feel like it's the first record we've listened to where I felt like I'm going to listen to this again. Like, there's something about it I, I don't understand yet. And I need to listen to it more so I can understand what's going on here. Great. Wow. I'm a little surprised by the result, but I'm, I'm happy. It should be pretty clear to anyone who's been paying attention that it's a yes for me. I like the record. I will continue to listen to it and laugh about our conversation here. I think that, <laughs> and, and I agree with everything that was said previously, which is, you know, like it or hate it or love him or hate him, Morrissey is out there in the world. He's a known figure. He's influenced people. He's got a cult of devoted fans. So do the Smiths. Teenage angst is a marketable quantity. I have, I have plumbed the depths of the rest of the Smiths catalog. I don't really think there's a ton there, to be honest. I do think this is the best, just FYI. Uh, there's some other stuff, maybe some singles. But yeah, I think Morrissey has his moments, and I think this spawned, if not a genre, it certainly just influenced a lot of people to be more smart alecky in their writing to be maybe a little bit more DIY or experimental in their approach to songwriting and even their approach to their onstage personas. Before we end, so it's a yes for me. That's a, that's a four to zero. It's going on the list. It is, has made our list of 1001 albums. You must listen to before you die. Before we move on to next week though, I did just want to, I pulled one quote about Marcy. There's a lot of terrible things that Marcy has done out there. I'm sure you can dig them up. He seems insufferable. Certainly don't want to hang out with him. But he does have his moments. In 1992, he, pla he blasted the entire genre of dance music, telling Details Magazine, it's the refuge for the mentally deficient. It's made by dull people for dull people. <laughs> oh. Marcy, you're an ass, but you have your moments. You're on the list, baby. <laughs> now, what are we looking at for next week, Tom? All right. We're going to pull out the Albinator. 5,000. Uh, crank that bad boy up. Get it going. I am excited to move on to another album. Uh, let's here, here. Uh, hope that it's uh, you know a deep dive into Morrissey's solo work is the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. so, I'm busy next week, guys. Uh, <laughs> drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to Devendra Bonhart's Rejoicing in the Hands. I don't know if anybody else is familiar with this album. I don't know any of the words you just said. Okay. What, what is it again? <laughs> yeah, I don't. The artist I certainly am not familiar Bonhart. with it. Devendra Bonhart, Rejoicing okay. in the Hands. I I love. I really like this album. I've seen him live, and he is a very unique guitar player. I just put it that way. One might say. Yeah, but he doesn't detune his guitar. His guitar is completely out of tune. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> my, my, I don't. I have. I've definitely listened to some of his music, so it's possible I've spun this one before. But I'm not super familiar with it. But my only picture of him is as a weird gypsy hippie, like wearing scarves and rags and shirtless. Oh, and, literally, yes. But I, when guy. he played, <laughs> uh, when I saw him, he had the huge long hair, the huge long beard, and he was in like one of those like not quite a dress dresses. 
it, it like the patchouli stink that comes off of him is just <laughs> overpowering. And uh, I'm sure that he has not seen the inside of a shower in many, many moons. But the man knows how to play I, guitar. I have a fun story about Devendra Bonhart uh, that I'll share. I'll, I'll share next week. Well, look okay. forward to that. So I was gonna say, don't, don't, yeah. don't ruin the gold on this one. I'm, I got a lot of Oh, Devendra yeah. Bonhart I mean, stuff. this is like, uh, this is this is some great A stuff. I mean, Save this it. Is in, this is in the vault. That's our teaser. Put it in the vault. Take breaks and notes, and we'll get, we'll get into it. Yeah, you might want to put that comment in the commercial for next week's <laughs> podcast. We're going to be running that, yeah, right? Yeah. National radio, yeah, I think. It's going to be on Monday Night Football. <laughs> of course. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you want to mark that. I will mark, mark it. Yeah, let me timestamp this right now. Well, it was a lovely conversation with you all. It was great. Great hearing from everybody and, and getting into this. I'm very excited for next week. I just want to say that uh, before we close things out on The Smiths, The Queen is Dead... If you, uh, did we get it wrong? Did we get it right? Do you have more complaints? Do you want to talk some more crap? You can email us at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Let us know. If your hate mail is articulate enough, we might just read it on the air. (laughs) Oh, yes. And until we see you next time, I have been Rob. I have been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Phil. Boosh.